Hello, Gorillas. This is episode two, season three of Gorilla Opera Podcast. My name is Taekim, ensemble pianist, and I'll be your host for this episode. This episode will focus on the opera Heart of a Dog for the upcoming watch party on June 4th. We'll be joined by the composer Rudy Royan and Mike Williams, ensemble percussionist. Let's dig in. <laughs> One of the first impressions I got from the opera is that it deviates quite a bit from the novella by Bugakov. Yeah, well, the you know it's a wonderful it's a wonderful novella. That I remember at the time um, I really wanted to write an opera, and the biggest questions at stake were how could we possibly do that? Right, like we've never done an opera before. I mean, there was no group or anything. I just kind of wanted to to, to write an opera, and so picking that piece was kind of very strategic because we knew. We wanted the operas to be much shorter than conventional operas, so I was planning on mine being about half an hour long. Uh, and so I wanted to pick something that, first of all, would just fit in the amount of time we had. And so the book was very attractive that way. The other thing is there's just not a lot of characters in the book. And as we tried to put the project together, we basically said, like, okay, what voices and instruments can we get? And we came up with these these two quartets, a vocal quartet and an instrumental quartet. Um, and so that was, you know, a lot of it was was very practical, um, basically. Like this seems like a story you could tell in half an hour that has a beginning, middle, and an end, and is also just kind of totally wacky. Um, the, the the changes in the book, I mean, really, the book is pretty different from um, <laughs> from the opera. Um, one of the big changes is that they're just there's too many male characters in the novella, and so we had two singers who were female and two singers who were male, so that kind of demanded that you know, one of these roles be uh, be female. So we made the dog female. Um, I love that idea because it just opened up all kinds of, you know, slightly creepy, you know, sexual, uh, you know, issues that the opera kind of explores a little bit. Um, and right. so that I just found interesting. I mean, I loved, I loved the novella, but I think I read it and then basically just wrote my own opera six months after having last read it. You know, I didn't, I was not like going through the pages of the novella. I just kind of like, here's my version of it. Um, so it's not particularly faithful, but I do think it captures the spirit of it, you know, like the fast pace and the kind of uh, hecticness and the insanity of it. This was essentially conceived with the premiere of the group in mind, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. The, the group didn't exist. And so the group was kind of uh, created out of necessity for, to make this opera happen. And so I just, you know, I happened to be good friends with a great singer and a great percussionist. Uh, and we, you know, and they were of similar minds. We had done obviously a lot of projects together before that. And so we just kind of banded together and say like, well, let's make an opera company here. Um, and this will be the first thing we do. And I mean, it was, we were totally naive in, in how prepared we were to do it. I mean, none of us, Aliana was a singer and had done operas, but I, you know, we were talking about staging pieces, you know, doing, doing a fully staged version with lights and, you know, music and, um, you know, and we just had no experience with any of that stuff. And it was like three months before the premiere that we really, that the idea was really solid. And so everything happened in a very short amount of time. And that's kind of one of my biggest memories of it. Um, and then when it all felt like it really came together, it was a, it was a wonderful feeling. 
So, Mike, how was that like working with Ruby? I mean, we were friends and kind of, you know, colleagues for years, you know, prior to that. So we already had like a, a solid working relationship. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it um, it's kind of firmly imprinted on my mind just because it was the genesis of Gorilla Opera. Um, and it, it, I, it was really like us kind of collaborating to um, bring all the collaborators together for the whole project, I think. And the way we approached it was sort of um, less about um, what the instruments were and what the voice types necessarily were. It was more about bringing together the right group of people that were interested and kind of like-minded um, to do a project like this. Um, just because it was kind of fundamentally ambitious, just that it was kind of an unconducted um, piece that had a lot of virtuosic um, performative elements to it as well. But um, Yeah, it wasn't and a so, huge, like there weren't a lot of possible people who we could employ because the piece was enormously difficult um, and, and the schedule was tight. And so we had to pick people who were super passionate about the music and about new music, period. And uh, we really found them. And I mean, I think that was, you know, that, that's the magic of the group is that that cohesiveness um, that you build, you know, and then when you have the right personalities, you know, um, that's what's really makes the thing sing as opposed to whether you got a clarinet or a, a violin. Right. It doesn't matter as long as the guy playing it or the, the girl playing it is on board 100 percent. Right. And so the, the collaboration um, leading up to the performance was more about that. And so finding a stage director and finding some kind of production personnel um, basically to, to form the whole production ultimately. Um, and then kind of the, you know, just the circumstances that we ended up with kind of ended up defining um, Grilla Opera's kind of performative style from that point on. So this kind of quartet of singers and quartet of instruments um, and just a smaller, um, group of people in general so that everyone's kind of role is amplified by virtue of that. Great. Another lasting impression I had as an audience member was not having to sit, which was unusual to say the least. That's interesting because when we initially premiered the piece, this is not the production that Grill Opera has up uh, for viewing. Um, this is the second production that we did of the piece when we worked with uh, the director Copeland Woodruff. And he really kind of totally re-envisioned what the piece was. And so it's interesting that, you know, this Heart of a Dog was Grill Opera's first piece and we kind of formed the model of the group from that experience. But then when we redid it with Copeland, it was the first time we had redone a piece, which kind of gave the director an opportunity to really know the piece because there was a recording and the score was, was readily available in advance. And so he completely re-envisioned and really um, took us a step further dramatically than I think we had ever been. Um, and so that whole idea and that concept of, of having the audience stand, adding a carnival barker and having us move through the space was really a, a new experience for the group. I think much more ambitious and experimental type of staging when, when previously we'd really been focused on kind of the experimental nature of the music. Um, so he really pushed things further in that, that regard. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the first time we did it, it was just kind of by our bootstraps and, and the director did a, did a great job with what we had to give her. Um, but by the time we redid it, I think we were in a, in a more sophisticated place as a group. But also Copeland kind of brought this vision to the piece um, that was just uh, was singular, you know, kind of immediately felt like home. I remember like talking to him about his ideas for, you know, some of the steampunk aesthetic and and this idea of a, of a kind of a the dirty side of a carnival is where these things are unfolding. 
um, there, there was a darkness to his vision um, that just like matched perfectly. Uh, and it was, um, I think the moving around, because the piece is so short, I feel like you could, you could almost never do demand that an audience stand. But if it's a piece that's 35 minutes long where you move multiple times, um, it, you know, it's possible. And there were a lot of, you know, during the production, it was challenging, like depending on how the crowd moved, you might not always see everything that was happening. And so there was, um, which was kind of a wonderful thing, but also the experience was different every time you, you saw the piece because you were kind of peeking around a corner in a different way, um, you know, or seeing people kind of moving um, in the background in a different way. So um, it was a wonderful, wonderful production. The set definitely had a surreal, if not unnerving, feel to it. Like Carnival Fun House or Haunted right. House kind of a vibe in that, that regard. And it also is like pretty brilliant because, I mean, still we're, we were operating um, on, you know, pretty tight constraints um, by opera company standards. And so in having the audience move in a circle around the space, um, it was a way to kind of totally transform each scene of the piece without having to have any kind of elaborate... Um, set pieces or extreme lighting changes or anything like that. It, it, every scene kind of has its own identity visually and its own kind of feel because the perspective of the audience is, is transformed in each scene in that way. So it, it actually, I mean, it's like, it's such a brilliant production in that regard. And it's just so in sync with, with the piece musically, you know? Yeah. I think the other thing that it lends itself that, that was so wonderful about it is that you, the proximity of your ears to the bass drum or you know the singer's voice you were so much closer there was like a visceralness to it you know it almost there's almost like a rock element to it of like the music is you can feel the pulse of the music because you're so close to it and it's so loud you know which um has its upsides and downsides <laughs> but like i certainly like you know i certainly am into that big time <laughs> it also just fixed some of those balance problems though because everyone yeah Singers uh, were so close to the audience, and, as well as the instruments, but you you just didn't have to worry about you know this you know if 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 the audience is at a distance, the space, the acoustic of the space kind of um, blends everything together in a way that makes balancing things much more difficult. And because the audience was just right among the performers, um, it, it changed it in that regard a lot as well, which was kind of this nice bonus. Yeah. We made several crucial observations And now we're ready to expand those calculations To our greatest experiment to add about this production? One of the unfortunate things is that you don't get to really see the carnival barker. Um, and so in that um, production, there was this actor, a wonderful actor, um, who was a carnival barker. So when the audience arrived outside the theater, he was already there, you know, kind of interacting with them, making jokes, um, kind of criticizing them. And he was the person who, who led them through the production as it happened. You know, and he would kind of direct people this way and that and kind of 
be interacting with the audience as it was happening. Uh, and that was another element that unfortunately, like the video doesn't really capture, but I think in the moment, like people who went to it, that was a pretty, that was stamped on their, on their mind as part of the experience. Yeah, kind of the production necessitated having a stagehand or somebody kind of shepherd the audience through the space for scene. And um, having the carnival marker was a way to kind of do that that made it like a part of the show and a part of the experience um, without having to kind of break, um, sort of break the fourth wall of the show or whatever, where, you know, stop the show, move everybody around. It was like he was a part of the show and he could, you know, direct everyone through. And just that he was such a fantastic actor, he was so hilarious and so comfortable kind of riffing and interacting with the audience. Yeah, yeah it is super, unfortunate. Super talented video, guy. Yeah, it's unfortunate the video doesn't doesn't capture all of that. Yeah, I mean, there was a moment, I remember, uh, I think you guys were changing a scene, and I remember uh, he was just barking at the audience, like, nothing right. to see here, nothing to see here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a great moment. Let's talk more about the set. Um, well, some of the other really special elements of the production that that I'd love to highlight uh, was just the, the production design uh, and the lighting. Um, and was that the first production, Mike, that Julia was on on board with us? Um, it, it, that it was the uh, "Say It Ain't So" Joe Curtis's piece was the the first. Um, okay. But, yeah, this was the yes. second, I believe. Yeah, and her design was just incredibly minimal, incredibly. Um, practical, but also utterly haunting. Uh, and and Flala Lopez Waterman, who did the lighting, it, it was also there was an eeriness to it um, that was, you know, the lights kind of came from all these different places at different times, um, you know, and the, and the role, the light was like really almost a character in the opera, um, you know, kind of guiding people and, and, you know, revealing things or not revealing things. And um, it was really a special uh, collaboration. Yeah, the, the lighting is sometimes like a really subtle element of the piece, but it uh, really defined the space um, in terms of the kind of that haunted house element of it, to it. And, and particularly some of the scenes as well. I remember the one surgery scene with the, where the doctor kind of taps the flickering right, yes, light. Yeah. And a lot of, there were a lot of elements like that that, that um, were really, really planned and like carefully orchestrated. Um, but he spent a lot of you know work, like actually working out those details and stuff that totally just make some of the scenes in the opera really happen as well. And the way the lighting kind of interacts with the voile curtains, um, just that element of the design is like really, really effective. Yeah. How important was Heart of a Dog for Gorilla Opera? For Gorilla Opera, I would definitely say that this is one of the most important, I mean, obviously just because it's the first piece we did, but in general, it's one of the most important pieces we've done, I think, because we did it so much 
Um, we did the production in several different places and at several different times. So it's really uh, our most performed piece. And just because it was the first piece we did and it was this kind of landmark production for us with Copeland, um, it's just a hugely memorable piece for guerrilla opera in general. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, the, the, I remember that production in particular just felt like everybody was incredible at their job, you know, like across the board, the design, there was so much creativity and there was such a tight bond with the group. Uh, and it's just uh, really um, a lot of great memories of that, uh, of that production. Wonderful. Thank you both for joining us. Hope to see you at the watch party. Yeah. <laughs> and this concludes this episode of the Gorilla Opera Podcast. Thank you for tuning in and hope to see you at the watch party of Royan's Heart of a Dog on June 4th. Till then. <laughs>